Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Urban Rivers podcast. This week, we have a very renowned and famous and touted author, The History of the Chicago River by Libby Hill, Miss Libby Hill. Libby, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We have very much enjoyed reading your book over the year, and especially um, the recent update that even includes our picture of a wild mile on the very cover. Um, It's a great book that contains so much incredible and intricate history of the Chicago River that any river fan or any Chicago fan in particular should know about. So, Libby, thank you for joining us, and I, you know really want to get in a little bit and understand what made you write this book you know what is what is your background like that brought you to this point where you know so much and wanted to share your knowledge about the river well it wasn't quite like that um it's just a little back of my background might help um explain how i got into this in the first place um i grew up in baltimore about five blocks away from me was a little Um, stream or creek called Western Run and my brother and I used to go down there it was just very leafy and very safe and uh, he taught me how to um, use stepping stones to get across the river this this creek so that was a part of my life um, from when I was growing up and my father also had a farm in um, the outskirts of, of Baltimore and that had a stream running through it and my brother and I used to try to dam it up all the time so um, and it had a swimming hole so um, and the cows used it too so anyway that was um, that was um, those two streams were really important in my life and then when I went away to college in North Carolina uh, my school was had a little stream running through it too Um, it was called the Buffalo and um, this guy who did a 10 o'clock uh, country music show named Jamma Diddy, he would broadcast from the banks of the Buffalo every night. So we used to walk along the Buffalo, Pussy Willows grew there, and um, so that was that was my college. And then when um, when my husband and I moved here to, to Evanston, we took my daughters, um, we took our daughters leaf picking in Harms Woods. And there I said, oh, there's a, there's a stream. There's a stream that reminded me a little bit of, but the water wasn't quite so clear. Um, it was kind of a muddy, slow stream. And my husband said, looks like the great green, greasy Limpopo. But it was a stream. And so, and then later on, I began volunteering at the Ecology Center and there was the North Shore Channel. So somehow my, Whatever it is I'm doing leads me to, to a stream, not the lake, not a big lake, not Chesapeake Bay, none of that, but to, to a stream. So, all right, that's just a little background. So about this book, for reasons that I cannot remember, sometime in 1994, when I was finishing up my degree at Northeastern, I found myself in the public relations office of the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, maybe looking for some information on something, I don't know what. And um, Peggy Bradley, we got, was the public affairs person and she, we got into a discussion. She said, uh, you know, there needs to be a book on the Chicago River. 
um, because everybody's using us for a resource and that's not our mission. Our mission is to keep the lake clean and so, and she said, but we're giving out all this information. And I said, no problem, um, I'm a librarian, I'll find you a, a, a book. And she said, there is not a book. And she, I said, well, I'll, I'm sure I'll find one. And she said, I will bet you that there is no book. So I said, okay, you know, we didn't put any money on it. And I went searching for a book. And I found one book called The Chicago, which was written in WPA times. And it's a charming book called The Chicago, but it's more about the personality of Chicago and uh, um, the, the really interesting politicians with lots of stories about it, but it wasn't really about the river. And so I went back for another appointment with Peggy and I said, uh, to admit I didn't find the book. And then there was this voice that came, I don't know where it came from, I can't tell you. And it came from the back of my head somehow and it came out of my mouth and it said, well, maybe I'll write it. Maybe I'll write one. <laughs> and it, we were both surprised. And she said, you know, if you would do that, we will help you in any way. We'll give you any kind of information that you want. We'll do, you know, just, just consider it. And it was like we considered it done. You know, it was like we sort of shook hands on it. And I s said, but I mean, I was so in over my head because, you know, it, um, you wouldn't, it would be like in over your head on the river, except that in the old river, you couldn't get in over your head. It was pretty shallow. But I was definitely in over my head. You could put everything that I knew about the Chicago River in a thimble. And, and I said, well, all right, I'll, I'll learn. And so um, I had friends who were interested in the river and had written about the river in one way or another. So um, I got them together and we thought maybe we would, um, maybe they would do chapters and I would, you know, just edit it and put it together. But that, there were, for a lot of reasons, that did not work. And then um, a friend um, I was visiting in Seattle who had moved from Evanston told me that she had written a chapter for a book that was to be, there was a grant given to somebody or other. It was going to be called the Chicago River Reader. And she had written a chapter for it um, and um, sent in her draft and never heard anything back. So she gave me, um, she gave me her chapter and all of her notes. And so uh, that sort of started me off to say, well, is there anybody in process of writing a book? Because I didn't want to do something that somebody else was doing. And so I, you know, I asked all my friends, everybody that I knew, and nobody knew of any other book that was being written. And so I could not get out of doing this. So anyway, we proceeded to, um, since I didn't know anything about the river, the first thing that we did was I gathered together many friends, and my husband had just retired, so he was fair game. And we delineated the Chicago, Chicago River watershed on topo maps. And, um, and that was how I learned that it went up to Lake County. I had no idea that it was any place else other than, um, other than downtown Chicago. I didn't know that the little stream that my husband called the Limpopo was part of the Chicago River. We used to canoe on the Skokie Lagoons and I thought, ah, what, you know, they're just like a bathtub. I don't know where, it didn't, it, I didn't ask where the water was coming from or where it went to. 
So I was just sort of like probably most people who um, don't know about the geography of, um, and my degree was embarrassingly in geography and environmental studies. So I had some background, some context in which to do this. I wasn't, you know, going from absolutely nothing. So, so anyway, that is how the book came about. Um, and unexpected, unexpectedly, I had just graduated, and um, I wasn't looking for a project, but there it was. <laughs> sometimes I, things are just a little too you know you, you hear that call and it's it's funny because i feel like a lot of a lot of folks that we talk to kind of have a similar origin story in that when they're young when they're kids there's something about like an accessible body of water and just how much life that you see if you just stop for a moment and look in it and kind of see everything that's going on it's kind of a it's a great metaphor for rivers in general, how, you know, it's so simple to just walk over them or pass by them and not think about them. But if you really stop and look, there is something very deep and something very, I don't know, magical in there almost that kind of, you know, I, I've very similar story. You know, when I was a kid, we had a, a small creek in the woods next to our neighborhood and you just spend, how could you not just spend hours, you know, finding stuff and playing around and trying to dam it up. That's an interesting, I had never heard someone trying to stop the flow of a little creek like that, which is, uh, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> this little creek that, um, where I learned stepping stones, it had water striders in it. Mm. And I love water striders. And whenever I see a body of water, you know, I want to see whether fun. it's got water striders in it. Lake yeah. Michigan doesn't have water striders. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe it was the water striders that seemed to be able to be wow. even on you know, even on polluted water, yeah. water striders are there no matter what. And mm -hmm. so, um, so they, I mean, that's life. That's where you see life. And that's where you yeah. know that there are other things in there, you know, so yeah, yeah. childhood makes a like, very yeah. big difference. Oh yeah. I, I, so, I mean, it really just seems like the, you know, I think one of the big things, and this is kind of our mission as well in building the wild mile is really getting more people to the river to experience that because i think especially if you live in the city or an urban environment it's really not set up for you to go explore nature like that um and so that's just kind of one of those things that we think is just so important and especially the younger you are the younger you can get to people and educate them about the world around them the better it just seems to work out later on as well so yeah, that's, I mean, that's just critically important, and I think you kind of just illustrated there why, you know, that's probably, maybe that's why nobody had written the book before, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any lack of information out there. You know, the river has gone through a lot of changes over the years. I just wonder, you mentioned um, starting off in the headwaters, so I kind of let... What What is sort of the upper reaches of the Chicago River? How did that how has that changed over the years? You know, you haven't been there the whole time, um, but what's kind of going on in the areas past the city limits that we think probably even less about this uh, Chicago River in? What's uh, sort of the history of that and how has it improved over time or not improved? So um, the river actually begins, um, the, the headwaters of the river are, um, are near Waukegan. Um, and you can go to a little area called Park City, which is um, mostly a trailer park. 
area, but um, and around there, you know, you can you you can <clears throat> you can see the origins of the river. Lake, these these are between um, uh, between moraines, so they're in the low areas where the water collects, and um, so the furthest north, farthest north is um, um, the Skokie River, that is up in um, up just near Waukegan. And then if you go over another moraine, there's the Middle Fork. And then another moraine over, it's uh, the West Fork. And, um, and so each one of these, um, so Lake County was settled early. Um, people um, went up from Chicago, um, some people maybe who worked on the, uh, um, the I&M Canal, went up to Lake County. You could go by water because there were sloughs that were interconnected, um, and so you could actually skate from downtown all the way up to Waukegan. Uh, and um, so, so it, it was connected, but they were mostly marshes, um, and this was true for all of the branches. So when it was settled, of course, it was settled by farmers. And farmers wanted to have as much dry land as they possibly could, because they're not going to grow their crops in in a marsh, and so they drained it. So this was the history of Lake County, that <clears throat> in this watershed, and I'm sure in the Des Plaines watershed as well, and others, um, that farmers just used drain tile. So and so and they would direct the water to a stream to a what became a ditch. So it. Um, di drainage districts dug the ditches, and so it became an artificial stream um, for each one of these. Um, and um, and over time, the banks sloughed in, and trees grew in the middle. And they needed to have they and continued to need to have the water flowing. Um, so they would occasionally. Um, do some sort of restoration work on it. They didn't, not ecological restoration, but just restoring it so that the water would flow. And um, so over time, as they, as um, people changed, began to s understand um, ecological restoration, um, these districts over time began to understand that they, <clears throat> they had um, invasive buckthorn on their, uh, on the s banks of the streams and you know, and that was one way that one reason that the soil was eroding into them, and so they, um, and so gradually these districts be began to to do restoration, and um, I have some of that in the, my book and some pictures of it, and they continue to do this, and they seem to understand now <clears throat> that when they do this um, green infrastructure. Um, they're trying to replace some of the pipes that have broken down with um, a, a, a more free-flowing stream that would be um, appealing to fish, maybe, and um, and so they're 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 working pretty hard on doing um, on, on making it um, not only attractive aesthetically but um, attractive ecologically, and. Um, so they've done a lot of work, and they're pretty proud of the work that they're doing. And but part of all this has been breaking down the tile, the drain tile that the farmers did. Um, 
But it was so settled by 1885 that Andreas, who was sort of known as the Chicago historian, the early Chicago historian, um, noted that he was concerned about flooding in Chicago, in, in the downtown Chicago River, because Lake County was being so built up and the upper watershed was being so built up that there was so much less permeable surface so even in 85, he understood, 1885, he understood the consequences of this. And so there were large floods and, and it had a lot to do with what was being go going on in Lake County. Um, but if you, if you look at uh, projects today, there's one project that's going on with the North Branch of the Chicago River um, that's uh, um, under the auspices of the um, Lake County Stormwater Management Commission, um, which is in charge of, you know, basically in charge of this project in the North Branch. And um, the objective is to try to get as many communities who are along the North Branch to buy into this um, <clears throat> so that they can work together. Because what has happened is that the, is that the river is, uh, under is in let's see, the people who are in charge of the river um, run through all these different communities and it's the who's whoever's in charge it's, it's fragmented and so they don't think about whatever it is project that they're doing on the river has any effect with upstream or downstream but in fact it does has a, a big effect so that's why we need to think in terms of the watershed the whole watershed um, instead of Chicago and the and Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, which is a you know a, a, a state body, um, they stop at the Cook County line as if the river stopped there, but the river doesn't stop there. So that's why this North Shore, um, this North Branch project runs in both Lake County and in Cook County, and it's the only one that crosses over that boundary. Um, um, but <clears throat> so that's a re that's a really important improvement, and that's happened maybe ten years ago. And Friends of the Chicago River is very involved in that. Um, you know, so so anyway, thinking in terms of the watershed is really crucial. But if you don't know where the watershed is, you can't think in terms of it. Um, and when I first started, just as just a little bit um, of background. Friends of the Chicago River gave tours, walking tours, um, early on when I was doing this in 1994, and I went on every walking tour. And um, my friend David Jones um, was their cartographer. And he showed me a picture of where he thought the Chicago River, the Skokie, started. And I said, that doesn't make any sense to me. So we went out, um, so a bunch of us, uh, you know, um, would, went out and we explored the headwaters of all three forks of the river, the, the West Fork, the Middle Fork, and the East Fork, which is the Skokie. We, we explored them and we learned, and that's how we learned that it was up in Waukegan and not where he had it, which is the Great Lakes Naval Training Base. So, um, because it looked like it came out of a spring in the ground, you know, and people thought, oh yeah, spring makes sense, you know, but, yeah. but this was just a pile of rocks that had been put there by the naval, you know, in the, in the golf course at the Great Lakes Naval Training Base Station. And so, you know, so it looked like a spring, 
but it, yeah. in fact it wasn't. Hiding under a military base, you would have thought. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, it too, because the, you know, when you're talking about, <clears throat> you mentioned the need for kind of holistic watershed management, and especially in an area like this where it does seem to pass by a number of governing bodies and Illinois just has no shortage of governing bodies, right? Especially the city. So it, it's funny because I, you know, I think some of these things, maybe the stormwater issues are a little more futile, but something like, I think the Asian carp issue is something that I think is starting to force these governing bodies to really work together. It's not like you can stop something like that or um, effectively manage floodwaters if you are going about that. So, um, you know, I I think we all kind of, in, in talking with, uh, we have kind of these river governance groups that Friends of the Chicago River is a part of, that a bunch of other groups are a part of where we regularly kind of talk about this. And I think one of the biggest needs that there is, is to have a regional, um, you know, a regional group that focuses on everything in our area and how it comes in and how it flows out and how it interacts with all these different areas, because it's just so, it is so crucial and you can't just do it the way that we want to do it, which is, this is my stretch of river. This is what I, my taxes will pay for. I want, you know, fish hotels and whatever here and i don't want i don't want the algae and whatever all the gross stuff it's like that's not really how it works you know and like you were saying the river is going to do what it's going to do it's it's not really yeah that's what this north branch project is really all about it's not that it's so easy to get these buy-ins um by the individual communities it's not that that's an automatic thing it's not that people say oh what a great idea um mm -hmm. because this takes money you know, yeah. and, it, and and money, you know, you need to have a pot of money in order to make a difference. And so then you have to make decisions about where the pot of money is going to go. And so um, so the need for cooperation is great, but I think that it's a, a, a very big challenge and, and certainly one that, you know, that Lake County is working on. I mean, Lake County Stormwater Management is a really um, a really good organization, and and um, and they were they were really helpful in um, you know from my my book. I mean they they were always available, um, and they've taken me on some tours of the uh, of the of, of how their the um, watershed is being managed um, mm -hmm. up in Lake County. So um, so yeah, that is a big. Big problem. It is funny too, and I tell people this a lot. Um, the the number one thing when I discuss an invasive species, the first thing that comes to people's mind is, can we eat it? That is always the first question, no matter what it is. Is can we eat it? It's like that's our that's our solution to everything. It's like, hey, can we just eat the problem away? It's like, well, you know, yeah, yeah, this one you really probably could. Have you um, run into anybody who's eaten quagga mussels or any of the other? Man, does it, I get the question all the time, though, and I'm just like, ah, yeah, there's not really any, like, meat in those. Like, maybe if you ground that up, you could probably make, like, a fertilizer out of it or something like that. But I don't know if humans are, you know, ever going to be eating quaggas and zebras like that. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so. But anyway, see, I, I, I'm not worrying. I'm not worrying about Asian carp. I'm not thinking that, you know, everybody blames um, the Sanitarian Ship Canal. Mm -hmm. and says, okay, well, 
and so it's Asian carp, and so they point their finger at the uh, sanitary and chip canal, but I don't point my finger at that canal. I point my finger at the St. Lawrence Seaway, if you want to point fingers, um, which, I mean, it doesn't matter now, but, um, but our invasive species have come up through the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, so years ago, when my kids were little and I took them to the beach, we had an alewife, an alewife invasion. Yeah. Came up yeah. through the St. Lawrence Seaway, native to the East Coast, um, mm-hmm. and but seemed to be able to survive in freshwater as well as you know, as saltwater, and brackish water. And they came up, and and boy, it was, I mean, that was a mess. That was a very smelly, very yeah. smelly mess. Um, and you know, the ships would come up and they would just unload their ballast, and they could come from Asia and so they unload their ballast right into the St. Lawrence Seaway and mm-hmm. and so um, so the first um, barrier was was built you know to keep a fish from going down into the Mississippi yeah. well by the time they built the barrier the fish was into the Mississippi yeah. um, but nothing's come up from the other direction mm. um, through the um, you know, through the sanitary and ship canal. So mm-hmm. I point my finger right at the St. Lawrence Seaway. And, yeah. Um, and say, if we could, <clears throat> we have to control. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to control these invasive species. Yeah. And a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and you know, it's, 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 <laughs> At some point, it doesn't matter, you know. If it, you point the, you know, blame on the ship and sanitary canal all you want, it doesn't matter. They're here now. It's like okay, we got to deal with it one way or another. Um, and it's interesting too because I've had, you know, there's some researchers at the Lake Michigan Biological Station up in Zion, which is um, run by the Natural History Survey. Um, I'd worked there for a little while and. I remember them talking about, you know, maybe it's even possible that Asian carp haven't made it into the lakes because the lakes aren't really suitable for their reproduction and for their growth and survival. Um, You know, one of the big issues of the lake, and, you know, we're getting a little off, you know, straying a little bit, but not not really. Um, There's kind of all these intricate things with all the, the nutrients and food availability and all these things that are completely different. You know, maybe they do really well in our river systems because our really our river systems do have a lot of nutrients and algal growth and things like that. Maybe that doesn't really exist in a very, very clear, cold-ish, deep lake, you know. So it's it's also, too, I think we we, we don't really have as firm a grasp on the effects of these and the ecology of these areas in the first place, because you've come from a point where the first, I think some of the first studies in ecology um, on the Illinois river, um, I think were done, you know, in the late 1800s and what they're pulling out at that point in time is already mostly goldfish and common carp anyway, which that's, it's another interesting point because um, the common carp were once the exact same thing. They were invasive fish. They, escaped hatchery ponds or whatever ponds that are there they put in these carp to eat the algae off the top of the ponds there's floods they get out and now you know there's not many places you can think of that don't have some kind of common carp in there yet everything is still able to survive you know i think we don't have as much understanding about these ecosystems as we'd like and we've also changed them so quickly within a hundred years that it's really hard to say 
you know, what can we necessarily do? What should we be stopping? Are we really willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in putting in new, you know, electric barriers and all this stuff that other states want Illinois to do? Um, maybe even some of them are talking about shutting off that connection entirely, which, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not something like that would be even that effective and how much money are we willing to spend versus how much we could just spend restoring these headwater areas and making sure that the rest of the ecosystem is, you know, fully stable and robust as we can get it. You know, it's, it's an interesting question of resources and where to devote them to. I remember speaking to um, a group of students at a high school about <clears throat> about whether or not um, the water reclamation district should be required to disinfect the water mm -hmm. and whether that your, your resources should go to that or whether the resources should be to go somewhere else or whether and then the subject came up um, well um, how about cutting off and, and this isn't really related to it but the subject came up anyway um, how about reestablishing the sub um, you know, watershed divides. How about mm -hmm. establishing them? And so, um, you know, I look, I've looked at various studies that were done and various proposals that have been done. And not only would they maybe create flooding um, someplace, you don't know, you don't, the, the unintended consequences are, right. um, th that's the biggest thing we have to deal with. Because some of these things, like when they started with um, Asian carp, um, with you know natural barriers to invasion, nat natural predators, so to speak, for invasive mm -hmm. species of plants, when they um, started with that, that was after um, after Silent Spring, mm -hmm. and you know Silent Spring had such a big effect, and then so the thought was, well, why not instead of chemicals, DDT or whatever. Um, why instead, not instead of chemicals just say well if this is an invasive species and it comes from Asia why don't we get something that would eat them from yeah. that the plants from you know um, and this is particularly true for um, in, in Florida um, I'm losing the name of the purple um, purple flower that comes but anyway another thing that happened was in goldfish bowls you know you have you have a plant that's growing in goldfish bowls and they all come mm -hmm. from Asia so you get rid of the goldfish because the yeah. goldfish dies right um, and so you just throw the whole thing away wherever. And so that plant, um, uh, the goldfish may die, but the plant doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, and then you import something um, because you think that that's the right thing to do. And the imported solution becomes a problem. And so, um, you know, I mean, so we try, you know, we, we try to figure out the best you know the best thing to do but um but as i say there are unintended consequences and we don't know of course they're unintended we don't know what they are right exactly it, it, it reminds me of um I, think it was, I was listening to something that was talking about um you know we mentioned the mwrd a couple of times the water reclamation district one of the things that they do as they take the water from your house and treat it one of the things that they're left with is something called biosolids. So it's all everything that's kind of settled out at the bottom of their tanks. It's a solid material that comes out of our waste. They scoop it. They, you know, they have a bunch of different tactics for what to do with this at all these reclamation districts across the country. 
Um, but one thing someone was telling me is that they were looking at this big deposit of biosolid material, and they were saying that um, within a couple of weeks, you'd see this big pile of material start sprouting all of these plants and it's all like these tomato seeds that are coming up that don't get digested in our digestive systems that end up popping up so even something like our waste has seeds in it you know even something as simple as that um you know a lot of people have been talking about pharmaceuticals and things like that and how that is passing through our body or being dumped down the drain as well there's um, there's been a couple studies that antidepressants are actually making you know small fish less wary of predators and things like this. Um, I think especially our water is something that is it's at the lowest point. Everything kind of works its way back down into the river into the it's this whole concept of headwaters. Everything kind of flows back into the same point. And I think that's just so true of urbanized waterways as well. They take all of our stuff they put it you know condense it put it in the same river and then set it down there's going to be so much stuff that's going on there and it just really i think underscores why we have to be protecting these resources at all costs because you just don't know what you're doing at any given time true i mean you know um they were they were studying um waste from various places to see um whether covid to see about yeah COVID. Um, you know, where if they could pinpoint where um, the origin of this uh, COVID DNA was coming from. Yeah. So um, I don't know whatever happened to that study, but I think that it's probably ongoing. But they did yeah. discover that they could, you know, they could find that, you know, yeah. in the water, but whether how far they could trace it, how specifically they could pinpoint, you know, where right. the, you know, the origin of it, I don't know. Yeah, but but there's a lot to study. I mean, they did the um, water reclamation district studied an enormous amount of of stuff along with argon um, to figure out whether they should disinfect. Of course, Mm -hmm. they weren't. They didn't have a choice whether or not they were going to disinfect because the public, the 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 public wanted disinfection. Yeah, and um, and there was so much. uh, there was so much testimony before the Illinois Pollution Control Board. Um, mm. Yes, we want the the N word to to disinfect, and so I don't didn't think don't think that they had a choice. But if you look at the data um, that they had, and you believe the data, so that's another thing. Uh, some people don't believe the data because they don't think the study was done well. But what mm. they what they what they found in the study was that. Um, in um, people who were recreating, so to speak, on the river, um, had one element more of a problem more than people who weren't on the river, and that mm. was ear infections. Uh, okay. And it wasn't it wasn't a big thing, mm-hmm. but it was ear infections. And but there are people who don't who don't didn't think that the study was done well. I mean, there you know, this is science. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you know, there's no one answer that comes up from science, mm-hmm. as we have learned from COVID. But anyway, that's what that's what this showed, and it didn't seem like it would require um, this amount of money for disinfection. But but because the water reclamation district had done this enormous project of carp of tarp, yeah. and because the water was clearer, 
and because yeah. people began to feel that this was a resource and yeah. they wanted to be on it and they wanted to kayak on it, like you took me kayaking, um, mm -hmm. that that people wanted it as clean as possible. Yeah. And so it because the water is what seventy percent effluent effluent from the water mm -hmm. reclamation district, um, you are kayaking on effluent, um, which is cleaned. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very clean, uh, but yeah. you're kayaking on effluent. Yeah. You want it to be clean. And so therefore, therefore they had to disinfect whether it was um, scientifically shown that they needed to or not. It was just, uh, mm -hmm. and people should be listened yeah. to. I mean, this is another critical thing is that <coughs> residents need to be listened to. Residents of our, of our watershed need to be listened to. And so, um, so yeah. it was important for for the decision to be the EPA's decision that they would do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting too. You know, we've had um, a number of community meetings that we've either attended or hosted ourselves. Um, it's interesting the things that people come to us with. You know, it's interesting the questions and the comments and people have just so many concerns about so many different things that I think all that people can really do when there's a, a real lack of information or public knowledge about something, they are going to cling on to what they think of as being um, their idea of better. You know, they you hear sanitation, you know, UV sanitation, and you think, oh, that's great. You know, I've I've been researching our microbes and our algae and things like that. When I hear that everything is getting a blast of all this UV light, you know, it's hard to imagine that that's just totally okay with everything that's trying to live there, you know. And I think one of those things that people really associate with clean, you think if it's a good river system, you know, by their subjective standards, then it is what is it's like very clean water. It's very rapidly moving. That isn't really necessarily the best for an environment and an ecosystem. You know, there are lots of different things that are supposed to be going on. You should have muddy little ponds and you should have kind of uh, turbid backwaters and slow areas and things like this. And I think that it's this pressure to homogenize things and make things look, you know, pretty, that really is kind of a threat to everything that we do because people have these weird expectations of what it should be. And for some areas, it's just not going to be possible. Um, for other areas, it's probably not even desirable. You know, you can't really have it be this, um, I don't know, kind of art piece all the time. Sometimes it is going to be kind of dirty and muddy and, you know, kind of scrappy because that's what the ecosystem needs. In, in my book, I use the example of Gompers Park as mm -hmm. a sort of a microcosm for how we, <clears throat> how, how over time we've looked differently at, um, at, at, at um, a waterway or something associated with a waterway having to do with aesthetics or having to be practical. So, um, th what was an oxbow? I'm sure that this was uh, that uh, the um, lagoon there or the pond there was an oxbow of uh, of the north branch, and um, and at first they tried filling it in. They said, mm -hmm. you know, we want to get rid of it. It's bad. There are mosquitoes. You know, so yeah. fill it in. Um, and they filled it in, and then that didn't work. Um, and then uh, I think as part of that, the ball field flooded, oh. and so there were. 
you know, there were, again, unintended consequences that they kept having to deal with over and over again. And finally, in the end, after several different tri tries, um, they dug the lagoon out again. And, um, and, and neighbors in Albany Park um, helped to restore it. Um, yeah. And, um, and it became a wonderful place you know, where you could go see dragonflies and birds and yeah. so on. When I last saw it, it seemed overwhelmed with willows. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether there had been a lot of rain or a drought or whatever it was, but um, it, it needed um, a little bit of help. And so um, <clears throat> it's been a couple years since I've been there with a the class. Well, because yeah, of COVID, yeah, I haven't yeah. been there with a the class. So I haven't seen what, oh, sure. you know, yeah. what has come of it. But over time, because of our attitudes changing, Mm -hmm. um, our attitudes toward the natural world and people being willing to work out there, wanting to work out there, wanting to get their hands, you know, in the dirt. There's just been a, it's almost a revolution of, um, yeah. instead of an evolution, um, whatever you want to call it, of, of, of restoring, of, of rest restoration over a period of time. And I can remember one thing in my first my first class the, the, um, in 1991, and I went on a tour of a natural area, and the steward of the area said, we want to restore this park, it was a big park, I want, we want to restore this park to um, 1843. That, that is before, this, before it was settled by white people. Interesting. And it was my first class, and I said, yeah. why? Why are you doing right. that? Well, they wouldn't even answer me because everybody was on the same page. I mean, you know, everybody had figured out that this was, this was the, this is the Bible. Yeah. You know, this is what we're going to do. And I right, said, well, right. I, I didn't understand it at all. So anyway, as I went through the, as I went through this program, and I, and I learned more. Um, I didn't. I said, well, why wouldn't we want to restore it not to the way it looked, but to the way it functioned, or to not necessarily mm. the way it looked, but the, making it function properly now, or as well as as good a job as we can do, if we have the tools and we know what we're doing. And I think that you know, mm. so restoration along the watershed is a really important thing, and and functioning properly. So um, that's why I became interested in green infrastructure. Um, and in rain gardens, and actually I am in charge of a small group of people who monitor our rain gardens in Evanston. We have um, five or six rain, rain gardens on public land, and we monitor them to make sure that they're being cared for properly, because if they're not cared for, they're not going to mm -hmm. do their job, and if they're not designed properly, they're not going to do their job. But the biggest thing about green yeah. infrastructure that I learned was as wonderful as it can be, has to be maintained. Just like your house or wherever you're yeah. in, whatever you're living, has to be maintained. And you can't just put in a rain garden and assume that it's going to be fine. It won't be. It'll be overrun by weeds, right. and and it won't function properly, yeah. and certainly won't clean the water as the water permeates through it. Um, certainly won't work that way. So, um, so. And I was interested in green roofs, which is why I put, um, I didn't know I was looking at a green roof. Uh, I didn't know the, 
in Chinatown that the public library had a green roof. And we were, we had gone to visit Chinatown and have lunch there and we were standing on the platform, um, you know, to get the red line. And I looked over and said, yeah. my goodness, that building has a green roof. That library has a green roof. So, you know, the, the more that you, um, but there was a green roof on a water plant um, and that attracted nesting, um, nesting birds. So that became a problem. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so they had to deal with that. So, you know, um, and then there are yeah. green roofs on buildings and they attract birds. And if there's a window there, the bird flies into the window. And so nothing can be done yeah, um, yeah. in the watershed to that's, um, that doesn't consider the um, implications for other, you know, for other creatures and for, for something else. Um, yeah, so it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and when you think about it too, ultimately what you're trying to do is replace, you know, thousands of acres of wetlands. You know, you can't. We we put up all this concrete, we shuttle all this water into these boxes just to get it the hell out of here. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is trying to fix a problem that without some serious engineering and kind of constant maintenance you're just never going to be able to handle that because what we're what we're you know what we unwittingly kind of destroyed is so much larger than you could have imagined and trying to get that density back into this kind of area with all these buildings and everything going on it's so it's so challenging um and i think this is probably a reason why a lot of these um projects in urban environments don't necessarily take place because you know okay is there the space we got to get all these permits do we have to move somebody's houses or things like this and it's like ultimately you know these problems are just never going to go away if you don't do that though that's i think that's the thing that it's just like we don't want to take that pain. We don't want to, you know, put the money up. We don't want to do something we're unsure of. But ultimately, the situation's not going to change unless you do that, you know. And we're just going to keep on bottling up water and sending it south as fast as we can. And nature is always going to show us how, you know, ill ill suited we are to deal with the next big storm because every time we think we have something under control you know they turn on another tarp thing and then we get more rain then we get eight inches of rain in three days and it's like oh we never thought that was gonna happen you know our our islands got pushed to the very limit this last about this time last year with water topping the seawall you know which should have never never had it shouldn't even be physically possible for that to happen but that's how much water we got and it's just you know until you have more of these solutions that replace these just it must have been millions of gallons of water that were stored between lake county and cook county these areas you know traditionally swamps how do you replace that you know how do you even come close well you know one of the problems got worse after world war ii the lawns lawns of kentucky bluegrass mm. So um, you have a lawn, let's say, and your neighbors mm -hmm. do not want you to have dandelions. Mm -hmm. You have dandelions, then they're going to get dandelions. And so you put fertilizer on it to make it grow, and then and then you cut it using gasoline mowers um, and leaf blowers, and which we love to outlaw if possible. And um, <laughs> and and then you and then you put on um, herbicide. Um, or pesticide or yeah. whatever in order to kill the you know kill the weeds because you want your perfect the perfect lawn 
and why? You know, yeah. so just why? Why are we doing this? Why has this mm -hmm. happened? Why have we decided to emulate England? Um, and there, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> and there are castles and so on with these, you know, um, beautiful lawns. Or maybe Versailles had it too. I don't know. But why have we? Why are we doing that? Well, yeah. I don't know. It's a good neighbor policy or something like that. But you, you know, you've got to have, you got to have a well kept. You got to have a well-kept lawn. Yeah. And we would like to, in, in Evanston, we would like to discourage it at least on the parkway. So we're right in the middle of trying to um, encourage people to to plant on the parkways, to plant native plants on the parkways. Um, so a lot of this push is not just for it is for two things. One is for um, yeah. water retention. Yeah. So that not so that less water is going into the sewer and less water needs to be treated then we right. have a combined sewer system um, but yeah. also because for pollinators so it's 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 double win-win-win kinds of thing um, but there are considerations of you know sight lines and so on and so we're we're trying to um, we're working on that right now uh, but we're trying to we're trying to do that but that's a part of so we have a small group that's called um, the watershed collective. So it's a small group of people working on, on Evanston's water systems and so on, and, and the sewer systems. And um, so, but you know, it, it, we're going to have to do that. We can't yeah. have all this impermeable surface. And so, um, so the major thing in the watershed is to try to limit Old the term, amount yeah. of water that's going in. And has to that the water reclamation district has to treat and store, mm -hmm. especially, especially until we get it's still in 1929. I mean 2029. We, you know, when we have the uh, the quarry completely yeah. operational. Um, so it's I, I think this is incumbent upon all of us to think. We can think about how we can, you know, just how our own backyards are contributing to the problem of climate change. Um, problems that are coming about yeah um, everybody's got I mean even if you live in a condo your your yeah. condo building or your oh, co-op or enormously. something has got you know in in a suburb anyway I don't know about Chicago um, but in the suburbs you know are contributing to, to this there are a lot of suburbs and um, yeah. so so everybody can think about how you can you know how you can do this, and we're trying to educate people about you know these, um, you know what not to do when there's a big storm. You know, don't do your laundry, don't run your dishwasher. You know, don't take a big, long shower. You know, I mean, um, um, so that you're not contributing to the problem. Yeah, I mean every every drop of water that you got that you're sending away from your house is ending up there. Um, yeah, and it's funny with the lawns, too. Man, people just don't realize how much of a missed opportunity some of these native plants are at dealing with this water. I mean, you're talking about the plants that were designed specifically to do what we need to do. You know, they're going to put, they're going to hold on to water. They're going to hold on to soil. They're going to keep things in place for you. They're going to provide for Paul. And I think that one, and I don't know if you've ever been up to uh, Gray's Lake in Lake County, the Prairie Crossing. Yeah, so Prairie Crossing is a great, fun little neighborhood. You know, I had a bunch of friends back in high school that lived there. 
um, it's just a fascinating little area where they took they took this. I think it was formerly maybe uh, farmland. Um, built a neighborhood out of it and this entire neighborhood you know there's still areas where there's grassy you know gathering spaces and typical park setting and all that but the bulk of this neighborhood is a big prairie that they do a lot of maintenance in and it's just it's so fascinating because all the things that people complain about oh you know the grass is too tall it doesn't look good it's just, you go here and it's just not true like people love living here there's such a sense of community and it's just it's really interesting that they all they're all really knowledgeable most of them are very knowledgeable in their in their surroundings you know they see these plants they want to know what the plants are they want to know oh what was this bird that i saw out there today just having those resources there in the first place is kind of the first step to kind of unlocking this thing in people's heads you only want a lawn like you said, because your neighbor has a lawn, it's really only because you got pressure from next door to do these things. You know who I, my cousins, they don't have a, you know, we've got the little patch in the backyard there of this house. They don't want to use a gas mower. So, you know, every once in a while they'll take the old push mower, just, you know, sweating, sweating their faces off. And it's like, there's, there's gotta be a better way, you know, and they still, they do have a lot of, you know, I've been, you know, they've been, putting in natives slowly over time you know they want they want space for their kid to play back there and they want to have small gatherings so there's there's ways to do that to make everyone happy you know have areas of the park designated for that but why not have most of our parks be you know something quite a bit more than they are now you know you go by these empty lots and empty fields that people are mowing for some reason the medians and the highways always drove me crazy like this is one place where you shouldn't have any problem just letting things grow and yet we've got guys on mowers at crazy inclines going all the time it's just seems like so much wasted effort just to control something very specifically that really isn't helping us in a number of other ways too so it's you know sometimes you feel like we just need to get to this critical mass of people who live in a slightly different way or who are showing how this gets done and that then creates the example for everyone else. It's like, hey, you know, these things that we were worried about, maybe they're not such a big deal and the benefits are starting to stack up, you know. Well, we could get that done through the watershed. If we can, you know, think in yeah. watershed terms. Um, yeah. <clears throat> not, just, not just downtown and the Riverwalk and so on. Right. But, and not worry about, you know, and to say, well, okay, we don't have to worry right now about Asian carp. They seem to be under control, at least temporarily yeah. here. Um, mm -hmm. And um, the Riverwalk is there, so people can you know, walk along the Riverwalk and they can enjoy mm -hmm. the downtown. But um, but the the rest of, and and the North Shore Channel. There's a big project in, in Evanston um, that's funded by I'm not quite sure who funded it, but anyway, um, along the North Shore Channel to mm -hmm. um, they can't get over the fence. Um, mm -hmm. There's a fence there, so but just going from the from the Arbor Lad Arboretum in Evanston um, mm -hmm. to the fence, um, they're, um, all, they're removing buckthorn and planting native plants all mm -hmm. the way along the, the channel. So there are a couple of places that are doing that, and and then there's a a Jens Jensen garden by a um, yeah, yeah. by the lake, and yeah. the person who's the steward there is planting so that people will see what it is that they can plant, what it is yeah. that will li live in their yards and what it is they can plant. So every every place that's doing some sort of natural um, 
restoration or natural creation, it's often creation, yeah. um, is trying to educate people about what they can, what they can plant and why yeah. they should plant it. Yeah. You know, and right. So, and yes. encouraging people to volunteer with them because if you volunteer, then mm -hmm. you're learning. So, um, yeah. So that's and that's along the channel, and the, and when the channel was first built, there is a picture in the 1917 plan of Evanston that shows mm -hmm. the channel banks being bare or barren, or maybe there's yeah. maybe there's closely cropped grass. There's no there's no way of knowing what this is because it's not a picture. It's a you know it's a rendering of what an artist an idea. Um, and sure. along. The, there are paths along there, and there are bridle paths. You know, so mm. the, you know they were so they were sort of encouraging horseback riding and encouraging yeah. the whole um, Burnham vision um, of, uh, yeah. um, of of what uh, what a river should be. You know mm -hmm. that it should be an attractive an attractive kind of place for re recreation, or as in downtown, it should be looking very much like Europe, like the mm -hmm. big European yeah. cities. You yeah. Know, um, not paying attention to to what was here that you mm. were talking about, what was here, yeah. um, but what we now we're settling it, what we'd like to have here, mm -hmm. um, and um, and whether that's whether that's good or not, we have it and we and we love it because it's Chicago. Yeah. Yep. Um, Darn right. So it doesn't have anything to do with what the river was originally. We try right. to talk about that. You know what the river was originally, but really what we've got is um, all these buildings that started off with being built in the 20s. You know, and that mm -hmm. and the you know Michigan Avenue Bridge, um, which is now named after Dusable, who was not really the founder of of Chicago. <laughs> uh, I mean, he didn't stay; he left. Right. Yeah. He yeah. Left. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he, um, he had a trading center you know but mm -hmm. um but th that seems to be um he, he seems to be considered the first settler or, you know um yeah. I, I mean he didn't have any influence over what chicago became right um but he was here probably with his trading post um first so mm -hmm. um so that's probably why you know lakeshore drive will be named you know DeSalvo drive according to the yeah. paper this morning yeah. <laughs> um, so, and my guess is that, and that's okay. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever it's named, you know, if, if you know that, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it's, but I mean, he, there he was. He was on a sandbar. Yeah. Um, and he was trading, and yeah. um, and so, you know, and we don't have that sandbar anymore. And you couldn't. I mean, if you could. You would be hard pressed to find a grain of sand yeah, in oh Chicago right now. Yeah, and any one of the you know, how, however close anything comes to um, to the water, you're not going to find any sand. There. The closest sand is probably in the barges that they're shipping for construction here or there. You know, <laughs> they've got big piles there. Or yeah. to replenish beaches. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. What? Oh boy. That's a whole. Yeah. It was. You know. One of the. Again. One of the earliest. You know. I had this, and you were mentioning Northeastern, um, and Gompers Park, and everything like that. The, 
one of the earliest and I, I had a class that was the foundations of ecology so you're reading all of like the first foundational papers in ecology when the science is so new and like the methods are so hilarious like the the one guy is going out to lake geneva and his you know the way that he's gathering data on what kind of stuff lives there is he's just tossing a net out and scooping stuff up and counting the fish and things like that which is such a you know funny and imprecise way to do it but it's just you know shows how far everything's come but um the one was about um Cowles and uh, the dunes. So dunes all along both the Illinois Lakeshore, Indiana Lakeshore, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan Lakeshores. That, that, that's something that you're never, ever going to get back in Chicago. It's not even going to come close to being like that ever again, you know. And that's there. And part of these dune ecosystems, they need space. So they're they're way of keep maintaining diversity you know these you get a a group of cluster of trees and then sand moves around and stacks up on the trees and starts to bury the trees the trees die you get a little mound there grasses to there's this whole big cycle and these dunes only survive when you have all this space for them to shift around in you know they only live because they were doing their own thing along the side of the lake. That's something that's just never, ever going to come back to Chicago. You know, you couldn't even recreate that if you tried, really. So it's just, it goes back to that point that sometimes it doesn't matter the way things were. This is the way that they are now, and we have to do the best with what we've got, no matter what. Um, well, there were never dunes, there were never dunes on the west side anyway. Um, I mean, dunes were always on the south and uh, south and east side. Um, but we have a, mm -hmm. a dune um, construction. We actually have um, dunes um, that um, were started in 1970s, late 1970s, and we have dunes that have, been, have built up. And so you can see sand dunes in, in Evanston. They don't belong there, but, yeah. but they're, doing, <laughs> they're doing very well and people love them. And um, mm -hmm. we started a, um, a bird sanctuary um, on sand on the beach and we discovered that once the beach was no longer um, raked and and clean mm -hmm. that there are native plants who were that automatically just came up um, there were yeah. still still seeds in the sand and so sand loving plants um, are still there yeah and so um, they don't have to be dunes I mean you know this is sand loving plants and they're always going to get cottonwoods and mm -hmm. the cottonwoods yeah. don't get buried. I mean, they just, you know, develop adventitious roots, so they, yeah. you know, they stay. So, um, so it, just learning about. So we're learning about all these things, how how to plant something from scratch, um, mm -hmm. and um, it seems to be working. If there yeah. weren't any. If there weren't any rabbits eating the plants, <laughs> you know. But they're part of the ecosystem. But yeah. you know, we have to, you know, we have to live with them. Yeah, uh, we've got we've had we've got a family of muskrats that we watch steal our plants every day. We watch them swim over past my window at our office. I watch them grab a plant and then head right back to their little <laughs> their little hole. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> this is on the we've wild. We've got a lot wild. of plants out there. Yes, that's right. We've got a, we've got a lot of plants out there, but not if they keep on taking one at a time every day. You know, that that might become a little. Uh, 
little taxing. But yeah, I mean, you gotta, you know, we've had our trees eaten by beavers a couple of times. Um, the geese get on that. We've got a couple of nesting geese on there right now. Um, the mallards will come start nesting at some point as well. It's just something where, you know, the people might in certain situations might think of them as pests, but it's like, ultimately this is, this is our environment. We've got a, you know, we're helping something, we're supporting something. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times common species don't really get the love that they deserve, but in absence of native species, the common species are the ones that are moving nutrients around and still having this activity and playing this role in the ecosystem. And there's always this question about what to conserve and when, because um, you can make the argument that when a species is endangered or close to endangered, it already inherently can't be participating in the ecosystem that much. If you've only got a handful of something left, all these areas are already existing without those things. So there's always kind of a lot of questions too about what do we, you know, what do we put our thumb on? Are we going to build a new pile of sand to get that diversity back? And is that going to function like we think, you know, a lot of it is experimentation that is required as well. And you really got to figure out, you know, given enough time are these things that we're building going to be long-term contributors to what we want to see or is this just something we're doing because it's an amenity you know a river walk per se it, it gets people down to the river but it also doesn't have a whole lot of ecological function um you could try out different things in the main branch but you wonder if maybe the main branch is just supposed to be a fun attraction and maybe you settle for having more revitalization other spots in the river um as we're moving kind of south and there you know you touched on the north shore channel a little bit you touched on headwaters and things like that as we're moving south down the river those characteristics change a lot you know one of my new favorite spots on the river um is river park right where they took the low head dam out where the channel and the I just, well, that's one of those things that there's like a little, and when the water is high and kind of moving quickly, I encourage anybody to go see that because it's just beautiful. You see that little waterfall coming over. It's just, it's incredible there now. Um, and things like that, it's like, you know, you probably wouldn't have found that really in this area beforehand, but this is something that provides a unique habitat type but then also is really attractive to us as well. So it, it's something where we're kind of making the best out of the situation that we have. To the, the removal of the dam. Yeah. Um, so I used to go to the dam quite often and talk with fishermen. And um, they loved to fish there. And, the, and there was always a heron there, and um, a, a great blue heron, and there were always black-crowned night herons. There, they didn't care that the bridge was there. The water was falling and there was plenty of oxygen. And so there were fish. And so you didn't even need bait. I mean, you could, you, you honestly, I mean, you know, I said, I, I would talk to the fishermen and I'd say, what are you using for bait? Well, I mean, it didn't really matter. And you could not use bait. And I can remember one guy, you know, brought up um, uh, some sort of sunfish. Um, and I, what did you use for bait? Well, I didn't do anything. I just. You know, I just had my you know, hook in the water, you know. Well, they're there, you know, so they're there. And so, you know, in, in the days before, before European settlement and then in the early days, like, uh, for example, at Skokie Lagoons, um, there were fish there. You know, kids used to fish there. I mean, there were fish all the way up 
all the way up the river because if, if we could get up to you know to Dady Slough was what really originally called this one little slough up near Waukegan um, if we could get up there so could a fish you know? yeah. so but we've put so many barriers in their way that they can't. So the hope is that as dams get removed that the fish will be able to get, you know, all, to go all the way up again. But when I think about the richness that the, the, um, the, the native tribes, the richness that they had, I mean, they could live off the river and the land um, because there were so many fish in there and there were so many, you know, um, um, well, who's who's taking your muskrats, muskrats yeah, yeah, and beavers and so on? I mean, they could you know they could eat them without decimating the population. Yeah. I mean, there there were not so many of them, and they could eat all of these things. Um, so that I mean the the wildness that was here, um, and and this guy Budlong, um, at Budlong Woods. I mean you know I mean that was a preserve, a game preserve, and you yeah. paid big bucks. You know, to go in there and you know and shoot a raccoon. Um, you know, I I mean, I, I think when I first started doing research on this, this had, had to do with the forest preserve that I take care of, which is a little patch in Perkins Woods, uh, named Perkins Woods, in Evanston. And I did some research, and at that point that I was doing this research, everyone was saying there weren't any woods here; that was all savanna. But that is not true. If you read the read the so I did. Um, so I went to Northeastern, and you know that Northeastern had the archives of all of the early surveyors. So I I mapped the early survey uh, surveyors of the entire Chicago River watershed, and um, to see what was there, because I figured that even if even if a surveyor misidentified a tree, it was a tree, and you knew you know what its diameter was and how far away it was. So. Um, and if you look at these, this data that was collected in the 1840s, 1830s, and 1840s, what was on the east side of the river was dense woods. You know, and then if you start, you know, so with that background, knowing that there were dense woods, this had nothing to do with the savannah, but there were dense because fire didn't didn't get into them very frequently, and. Um, and then if you started reading the um, archives uh, in the library and looked at the accounts um, of what people were talking about woods, you know, they, so uh, it's, it's a, you know, in the early days of restoration, people needed to learn, to learn what was there, you know, and not say, not say, oh, this is all going to be Savannah, so this Perkins Woods should be Savannah. It was called the Big Woods here. It was called the Big Woods, not the Big Savannah, you know, big, and it was woods, you know. Yeah. So I'm taking care of this woods that was an original woods. You've got to come up and look at it. You've got to come up and visit it. Yeah. The, um, and I don't know when the last time you've been back to uh, Northeastern, the campus there. Um, a couple years ago, that oak remnant savanna, when I was there, um, we were using the green fee funds that they have there now. So they actually, that was one of the projects that we supported was removing the buckthorn that had popped in there. And I actually, I used to work for companies that would clear buckthorn out of forest preserves and things like that. And there is something just unbelievably satisfying about seeing that before and after picture 
the woods just kind of choked full. It's just, you can't see, it's unbelievable the difference just visually that it makes. And you see all these, all these towering oaks, especially on Northeastern campus come back to life because, you know, all the, and you know, like you were mentioning all this understory and even just the floor, it's interesting little situation there. They've just kept like this tiny little fragment remaining but there's so much going on in there. Yeah, right. It's just, well, it's it. funny. We were burning it. We were burning it when I was a student there. Yeah. So it's been going yeah. on, you know, it's been going on for a long, you know, a long time. You know, I guess I would be remiss, you know, Chicago, the river system is so important for Chicago in so many ways. You know, it's on our flag. Everything about Chicago is just, these rivers have been enormously important. So there's all these ecological aspects that we've talked about. But I'm wondering kind of specifically about the cultural, the recreational connections that you maybe have seen over the years. There were swimming races in the river at one point, you know, way back in the day. It seems like so much of this is, you know, we're focusing on the ecology, but the cultural connection is also very important as well. Well, all right. So to me, um, the cultural connection, so, so I was talking a bit about the hunting. So the hunting was, yeah. was big, that was recreational along the river, that was, and you know, and, and the woodlands along the river. And, um, and ice skating was a very big thing, very big ice thing. Skating. So you could skate, you know, from Well Street. So, so in between the bridges, um, people mm-hmm. would have, group, different groups of people would, ha- would say, this is, this is my group, this is where I am. And they would be between these particular rivers, these particular bridges. Um, so people, the recreation on the river, um, and, um, up in, uh, um, I was going to say your neck of the woods. I'm not exactly sure that that's in your neck of the woods, but around Wilson, um, mm-hmm. um, where the big meander took place, that was a big mm-hmm. skating area and a, and a, oh, wow. um, a, a, and a, a swimming area. So, and then mm-hmm. in Glenview, these, um, the, the, there, they, some people built a dam, some Germans built a dam, and they would have um, Sunday afternoon, everybody would dress up in their finery and they would come and they would boat there. <laughs> so, um, you know, everybody had a different, has a different idea, and, and over time, a different idea of what recreation is. I mean, now recreation mm-hmm. is, um, we have a lot of uh, technology um, to create, you know, um, the best kayaks and the best bikes and the best bike suits and you know all that sort of stuff. We have we're, we're using technology for that. Um, yeah. But before that, um, it wasn't there wasn't you know it wasn't technology dependent. Um, right. So, um, but I we mentioned the swimming. So the swimming came in after the um, after the Sanitarium Ship Canal was built. And the um, Chicago Athletic Club sponsored it, um, and you know every year there would be a race, and the Tribune would cover it, and the Tribune would say who won, you know, or the Tribune would first say who was going to participate, and then there were yeah. lots of onlookers. So part of the recreation was to watch, you know, just like a yeah. baseball game today, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And they would come down, and, and there were different places. It started at different places every year, but they went down into mm-hmm. the South Branch. And so, and you, there are no records of anybody having died of illness. Right. <laughs> they, people drowned. Not yeah. very many. Yeah. 
Not very many, right. but um, and they generally had somebody out in a, in a boat or a canoe, you know, um, yeah. who could help people. So they, you know, yeah. people weren't on their own in case they were floundering. Um, but it was a long race, you know, that it went down to the South yeah. Branch. Um, not oh, all, wow. I mean, not to Ping Tom Park, but yeah, sure. But, you know, <laughs> down to, you know, the south of the confluence of the of all of the yeah. um, south of Wolf Point. Right. Um, and so that's recreation then, you know, over yeah. different periods. Um, I mean, everybody used it for, because it was so shallow and, it, and because mm. winters were so cold, the ice, it, the rivers froze. Yeah. And so people skated on them. And that was the biggest thing that people did was to skate on them. Um, and if they weren't skating, then they were fishing. I mean, these kids had, in, in um, Skokie Lagoons, they had a, 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 they had a sailboat. Um, they, they made some kind of sailboat. Um, oh my God. <laughs> and um, I don't know that they were on it or whether they were toy sailboats. I'm not really, I can't remember right now. But anyway, it, there was a lot of recreation in the lagoons before they were the lagoons. And then, right. you know, so that was now, I mean, once, once the CCC put into practice what had, you know, what was the, the what, what was a dream to get rid of the mosquitoes and the fire and everything, um, it got rid of all the natural, you know, the natural areas as well, and um, became the lagoons. And um, so there's still, you know, plenty going on in the lagoons. And then there was Botanic Garden, which was a whole different concept, um, whole different concept than, than the lagoons. And, um, but it was part of, you know, part of that whole stretch of what was Chihuahua-Skokie, you know. So, so there was, I mean, there's been a lot of different kinds of recreation as, you know, as we've changed our idea of what recreation is. Um, so, um, but people still go to bird watch um, along the river. Um, and people, you know, and, and there's been so much kayaking, you know, so, so much in the way of kayaking um, and, and so many more entrance points. Um, I mean, that's, that's the major thing, a major safety thing, is that it wasn't particularly safe to, to even get yourself into the river because there was no point at which you could safely get in. But now there are, you know, now there are many more launching areas. Um, and so it makes it much safer to do that. Um, so I don't know what other, what other, um, what other kinds of recreation are you thinking about? Oh, no, I mean, that's, you know, just trying to get whatever sticks out in your mind, especially historically, you know, you always hear about these different, you know, it's now and now too, the water is even cleaner, it's much cleaner than it would have been when they were doing that swimming and things like that. You have now where, you know, friends and the commissioners get together and they do their big jump or whatever well, but, every but year. when they did the swimming thing, it was right after the, the I mean, like Michigan water was coming in. So, yeah, so yeah. where they were doing it was where there was cleaner water. I don't see any, yeah. uh, um, as I was researching this, I didn't see that anybody did a water test. Um, yeah, say, hard to say. Uh, this is safe. I mean, I think yeah. that it was because the Lake Michigan water was coming in 
and that yeah. you know, and the perception was, well, this is really we're swimming in a lot of Lake Michigan water. water. Um, and yeah. so, um, and it was before the um, before the I would say the dam before you go when you, before you go uh, where you have to go before the locks. It was before the locks yeah. were built. Uh, mm -hmm. Once the right. locks were built, the swimming stopped. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I can't remember what the years were, like but the, you know, I, but yeah. but that is in fact true that the they didn't after the locks were built, there was no more swimming test. Yeah. Well, and so I I guess what I yeah. So nowadays you get back to that. We're back to that point. But what I always kind of remind people is the water might be clean enough to swim in on most days, but it is the physical characteristics of the rest of the river that make it astonishingly dangerous. You know, you, we, our canal has two to three to five feet of just muck in some points on the bottom. Um, so when, you know, you're mentioning kind of bubbly Creek and the capping, it's like stuff like that really has to happen. Access points have to happen. You know, we, we talked to, you mentioned kayaking as well. Um, Kayak Chicago, who's across the river from us, who's been, you know, supportive of us from the very beginning, they mention they get down into the main branch sometimes, there's all these big boats, there's all this wave action going back and forth, and, you know, seawalls are not dispelling any of that energy, so when a boat goes through, it just keeps on back. So all these kayakers get tossed around, easy to have someone fall out of a boat, and if you're downtown, you know, there's times they were saying where there are emergency ladders that they have built into the seawall are out of reach at some points. You know, they're, you can't even reach up to get it. And so there's just so much of this. It's like I, you really want to emphasize that, like, this is a two-step process for us to get, like, that sort of thing because I think everyone – loves the idea of swimming in the river again. You know, that's kind of like the pinnacle of these urban restorations is we want to swim again. This is what I've been hearing from people. I've got a different, you know, There's focus. No but There's no beaches. So right. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's, not, it's not like there maybe weren't beaches at one point, but right. um, but there's no, no beaches. And when you talk about the, you know, what's on the bottom, I, you know, and I know you, you, you know, you like that area where the dam was removed. So yeah. when I first did was researching um, and going in the field, um, and we went to the dam to look at it, and I said, "Why would anybody dump dump um, concrete in the river? That's ridiculous. What's it, yeah. Was there a yeah. construction project here?" Um, yeah. And and then it turned out that as we walked along the river, there was more of this concrete, and yeah. and I. You know, so finally I did, you know, so I, I did some research on it and discovered that, in fact, they purposely put concrete there as, so that there wouldn't be, you know, mosquitoes. Uh, you know, of course, yeah. that, that backfired on them. Um, <laughs> I mean, that did not work. And now there's this, yeah. along that same stretch, now there's this tunnel um, in Albany yeah. Park. Because Albany Park was yeah. a terrible, um, a terrible ter had terrible flooding problems. And um, I remember me when they had the ribbon cutting for the tunnel, and Rahm Emanuel was mayor. And Rahm Emanuel, yeah. but he had represented that area. And he said they'd had one flood, and then another flood, and then another flood, and he said, never again. And that's, you know, and so he took credit for the tunnel. I don't, <laughs> you know, you, can't, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but he said, never again. Right. I said, never again, and we're having 
and so then yeah. half the tunnel. This was at the ribbon cutting, um, which, sure. he, which he said that. Um, but you know, so many engineering projects have gone on in order to um, in, in order to uh, solve problems. You know, so this is just mm -hmm. one tunnel um, that you really don't you really don't see that comes out near the you know near that wonderful place and that. That was the construction project at the same time when they were taking down the, sure. the dam. Yeah. Um, but the, the recreation of fishing, you know, right by, uh, people fish at, you know, on the river walk. So you talk mm -hmm. about, yeah. you know, recreation. Um, but it's not just recreation. I met a guy there who um, fished for his breakfast every day. Yeah, you know, there are some concerns with some of those fish. I think there are still limitations on the types of fish that you can eat in a certain time frame. But again, it's like it's one of those things that if you don't have it available to people, they're not going to use it. If you have it available to them, they will start to use it. You know, of course they will. The dam at Skokie Lagoons, there's always people fishing there. Every single very, time. Very, very yeah. popular place, and that's sort of a, a, a little bit of a problem for birds and ducks because they get entangled in the fishing wire so i yeah. think i think that they put up something to dispose of their fishing wire i'm not really quite yeah I think, that, I think there's some little stations that um or i don't remember seeing that the last time i was there but migrating season is coming up and i'll be in skokie lagoons you know every week so um so I'll get to see, you know, who's fishing there and, um, you know, birds fishing there, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But I mean, that's a, that is a big recreation. Skokie Lagoon is a big recreation point. Um, in in Lake County, where people call, the, you know, these these um, drainage ditches, they call it the ditch. They they just. So I said, you are you aware that. I'd be interviewing somebody, and I'd say, "Are you aware that you know the Chicago River runs is running right there?" And I'd say, "You mean that ditch?" I mean, they, they don't associate that with the Chicago River, as far as they're concerned. This is just a ditch, um, a ditch of water, and that's what that's what they call it. Just the last, you know, kind of question. I sort of wanted, you know, you've been focusing on this for many years now. Um, I guess what what have you discovered about the river that's surprising, and do you feel optimistic about this river system going forward? Well, what I discovered that was surprising was everything because I knew nothing, you know. So I, I was surprised by everything. I, I just talked about that concrete, you know. I was surprised by by that, you know. There wasn't anything that I discovered that was surprising that is was completely out of the ordinary. I mean, I. I was surprised to know that Skokie Lagoons was part of the Chicago River. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we we canoed there. You know, I didn't know that it was. You know, so everything was a surprise to me. You know, when I first did this research, yeah. everything. Um, and so, um, and and I ran across people who, uh, because I was interviewing people all the time, people who loved the river. And, um, and, and really seemed to understand it, had grew, grown up with it, and really, and, and remembered a lot of, of you know, early, um, early stories. So, um, so I, I mean, I think that that was, you know, for me, hearing people's stories about their relation to the river, 
um, was really wonderful. And then there were the other people who said, well, it's just a ditch or, you know, it's, it's just a dirty place. And talking to the fisher people. Yeah. I mean, that was really, um, I mean, I didn't know that you could, you know, that I, I didn't know why people went to that dam. I mean, I didn't even know the dam was there. You know, so, all right, surprise number one, there's a dam. You know, what is this dam? There's a, people call it the waterfall. Okay, what is this waterfall? Where, where did it come from? Why is it there? You know, and then all the problems they had with um, making it function properly. Um, so, so each one of the each one of the chapters that in in the book was just revelation after revelation after revelation. You know, by by looking at archives and by talking to people and by by visiting it and and being sure that I looked at as many stretches of the river as I could. Sometimes it's in people's backyards, and that wasn't that wasn't possible. So, um, but I think that because I think that because there is a, is the water reclamation district in Cook County and Lake County stormwater management, um, and uh, and I have tremendous respect for both of those organizations. Um, and where they are working together on the North Branch. I mean, that is the only, I mean, that is the only place where the river is, you know, it's come together and it's, you know, set. so I think that they're, because they're working on that, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's, they're working on where all the, the forks have come together. Um, I think um, they're working on where, um, let's see, what defines it, I think where there's, um, storm sewers, only storm sewers, and not not combined sewers. So I think they're working up on Debster Street North. I, th I think that that's, I think that's it. Um, so I'm encouraged that, you know, they're working together. I'm encouraged with about what Lake County is doing, um, particularly in their open areas where they are replacing these old um, pipes that have, uh, that have deteriorated and, and um, doing this, um, you know, doing amazing work. And that was, it was actually um, David who works, f um, works for Anderson um, Company, who told me about the Wild Mile. Okay. And said, you have to go down to the Wild Mile. Um, so, you know, so he's, but anyway, he's working up in Lake County. And so he sort of keeps me posted on what they're doing in Lake County. And I think that, you know, so there are really good things happening up in Lake County. And the the more that's happening good in Lake County, the better it is for what's happening in Cook County. Um, so even though the agencies are apart, um, the effect is is the same, you know, whether they're two different agencies or not. So um, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty hopeful that the river will continue to improve, and I'm hopeful that um, more people will will see what it is that they can do for the natural world, whether it be for pollinators or, or um, for stormwater, it's going to affect both. It's it's going to it's going to be um, a win for the natural world. However, they if if they plant a rain garden, they're planting for pollinators and they're also to, helping with, with the flood issue. Um, so it's really strange to be talking about floods and you know you read in the Tribune had this big article about floods. Um, and here we are in the middle of a drought. <laughs> well, Libby Hill, this was great. Thank you again so much. Her book is A Natural and Unnatural History. 
You guys definitely check it out um, if you haven't already. It's just uh, everything you just heard and even more. It's just an incredible explanation of where the rivers come from and where it is now. Also, if you guys have your local, you know, water agencies, be sure to be more involved in those planning processes and things like that because it is one of those things that tends to slip under the radar and it's it's just so important for these water resources so Libby Hill thank you again so much for coming on the podcast it was fantastic 